Thank you for joining us at Key Life Fellowship for our pulpit ministry podcast. Each sermon on this podcast is from our 11 a.m. Sunday service. We are glad that you have joined us digitally, but would love to see you in person on Sunday mornings at either 9 a.m. or 11 a.m. Now, let's open God's Word and ask Him to reveal His truths for our lives. If you have your Bibles, I want you to turn to Revelation chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2. And we are looking at part 2 of a mini-series within a series. I really don't know how that actually happens or how that works. It's just the way that it works in my mind. We have been looking at Christ's church, the dearest place on earth. And last week we looked at some bold admonitions to some churches or a church in particular in Asia Minor. And I told you that there will be six others besides Ephesus who we looked at last week who had forsaken their first love. Today we're going to be looking at a church in a place called Smyrna in chapter 2 of Revelation verses 8 through 11. Uh, This is what I call the poor rich church and the suffering church. It's a church who has nothing as the world would define possessions, but who Christ is going to say you have everything. A church that is going to be told by Christ that you're going to suffer and you're going to be in prison and then you're even going to die for your faith in me. And he encourages them, remain faithful unto death. Because we're going to see the doctrine of perseverance of the saints is going to come up throughout the entirety of this text and this message. If you are really in Christ, you will persevere until the end, even in the face of death. As the martyrs who have gone before us so often, we forget in the comfort of our American Christianity that we are here today because of the blood of others. We shed their blood for the gospel so that we could hear it. We shed their blood to translate these scriptures in a language that we could understand it. As we look at Smyrna today, we are going to see that they were a first century church called on and encouraged by Christ to suffer. Out of all seven of the churches that he addresses to Asia Minor, there are only two who did not receive some type of rebuke. One is Smyrna. The other is Philadelphia, to which we will get to in a few weeks. But Christ does not rebuke Smyrna today as he did Ephesus. In fact, he has no rebuke for them. So I want us to learn about this church, and I want us to learn about this church just like I want us to learn about all seven of the churches of Asia Minor, because I believe this. These were, as history tells us, Literal churches. They existed. These are literal writings to them from Christ himself. Encouraging them and rebuking them if need be so that they would be what Christ died for them to be. And I want more than anything Key Life Fellowship to be exactly what Jesus Christ died for you to be. We know this. I've already established the fact that it begins with the individual and it makes up the whole. And so as we look at Smyrna today, and as we are encouraged by this suffering church, there are going to be some difficult questions that we must ask ourselves. Some difficult questions that we're not going to necessarily like, nor will we like the answers to these questions. But we must ask them in light of what we're going to see today. Just to give you a little bit of Background, a little bit of history. I know the H word turns a lot of people off. They're like, oh man, don't bore us with that stuff. 
I want to give you this history because I want you to understand that this once growing and vibrant church in the midst of persecution and death no longer exists. I don't want that to be written about us one day, that we did not adhere to the instructions of Christ and the Word of God. And because we didn't adhere to that, candlestick was removed. And we just became a social club as we drifted off into space. I want us to see that these were real places. This is a real Jesus writing to a real pastor, giving real instructions. In fact, to give you a little bit of background on this church, it was located there in Smyrna, uh, the second most important Roman city in the area. The first was the city we looked at last week, Ephesus. Smyrna is located just 35 miles north of Ephesus. If you will follow this track as we go through these churches, you will see this. They make a big circle because it was an ancient mail route, and the mail was being delivered. This is a literal letter that was delivered to those churches. Smyrna is second only to Ephesus, located just 35 miles from Ephesus, in a place that we know of as modern-day Izmir in the country of Turkey. It's still the third largest city in Turkey today, but in the midst of that city was this smaller settlement known as Smyrna. And Smyrna, in fact, it's where it gets the name from, was a very, very important area because due to the fact that there in Smyrna they produced myrrh, and we know myrrh is used for many things, for fragrant oil, they used in perfume. Uh, they used myrrh for cosmetics. Uh, more familiar to us, they would use myrrh to embalm deceased bodies. In fact, we see in the Old Testament, myrrh was used by Moses uh, to anoint the objects of the tabernacle. And we know that myrrh was brought by the Magi when they came to visit Christ. Now, also, we know that myrrh was used to embalm. In fact, we all in school studied when you didn't want to listen to the teacher. You, you at least saw a cool picture of a really decorated tomb-type thing or coffin. And they told you that that was the body of the mummified who? King Tut. And even in the days of Smyrna, Smyrna would ship this myrrh all around the world. Could it be that the Egyptians who did perform the ritual of embalming and wrapping those those bodies and mummifying their important loved ones and their important rulers? Could it be that Smyrna was the place that produced this for them, that they purchased this from? Like Ephesus, Smyrna was the center, of course, of all sorts of Roman paganism. It was home of what was known as the Street of Gold, a street that twisted and turned through the hillside known as the Pagos, which this hillside and this Street of Gold was covered with temples built for various false Roman idols and deities. One of them, you might be familiar with this, was a goddess by the name of Sibylle, and she was the mother goddess of Roman idolatry. And as crazy as this, as this sounds, she was worshipped and often 
the worshipers who would worship Sibley would find themselves caught up in sexual frenzies. They would practice sexual immorality as a form of worship. And it's documented that they would be caught up in these sexual frenzies. And at times, people would be so mesmerized by this satanic worship that they would even castrate themselves. Then at the other end of the temple, the road there, excuse me, you would have the temple of Zeus. So picture this, Sibylle on one end, Zeus on the other end, and all of the imaginary demonic gods and goddesses in between. Zeus, many of you are familiar with Zeus. You've studied mythology in school, or you have watched Superman. He's known as the god of the bright sky, uh, the lord of thunder. He was the chief god who controlled the weather. We know that's false. We know who controls everything. And in between these two, Sibylle and Zeus, you would find idols, two names that you're probably quite familiar with, Apollos and Aphrodite. There was no shortage of idols in this time. Paganism controlled this city just as it controlled most Roman settlements in the day. Now, why do I tell you that? Why would I bore you with all of these things? I pray that you're not bored. Why would I tell you these facts? Because I want you to know in the middle of all of this, sexual immorality, idolatry, worship of false gods and goddesses, the mutilating of people's own bodies in the name of paganism, stood this group of believers that Jesus is going to address in this letter that he had John pinned down. This group of believers there, in the midst of a pagan stronghold, who would lose everything for Christ. You know, you know what the problem with the Smyrnans was, it wasn't that they worshiped Christ. It was that they worshiped Christ alone. They would not bow to Sibylle. They would not bow to Zeus or Apollos or Aphrodite. They would not bow to the emperor of Rome himself. Their crime in the eyes of the world of their day was that they would only bow to Christ. We're going to see persecution came toward them not only from the Romans, but also from the Jews. He's going to call the Jews there at that synagogue located in Smyrna, a synagogue of Satan. And he uses harsh words there to let you know that these are unbelievers persecuting Christ's people. Though we have no clear evidence of how this church began. We can come to this conclusion. Acts chapter 19, verse 10 tells us this, that Paul and his associates, in their efforts to preach the gospel, it says that, all the Jews and Greeks in the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord. So we have to think that the Apostle Paul was involved in the missionary work somehow, either directly or indirectly there in Smyrna. A man who knew much about suffering. Much about dying for the cause of Christ as he was beheaded for the glory of God as a martyr. So in the midst of all of this persecution and suffering, paganism, poverty, stood this Christian church. Stood this Christian church who Jesus is going to say, 
I commend you to. And then he's going to encourage them, not only do I commend you, don't back down. Keep doing what you're doing. And I want us to look at this today. We have looked at the historical element of it. We will get to the practical element for us. I want us to look at this today, and I want us to examine ourselves in light of the example of Smyrna. To ask ourselves, if we were to lose it all, even our lives, would Christ still be enough? Let's read it together. Revelation chapter 2, verse 8. It says, To the angel of the church in Smyrna write, These are the words of him who is the first and the last, who died and came to life again. I want to stop here for a second because I want to explain the significance of that statement, who died and came to life again. Because the city of Smyrna understood that statement. We know Jesus is talking about his resurrection. He is the resurrection and the life, just as John chapter 11 said that he is. But I want you to understand it in light of it being said to those in Smyrna. This city was completely destroyed in 600 B.C. by the Lydian king Attalus. Attalus destroyed this city, leaving it in ruins. However, in 334 B.C., Alexander the Great had a vision, and he desired to reestablish and rebuild the city of Smyrna on the top of Mount Pagos. Though Alexander the Great did not accomplish this, it was his successors and his associates who did. They did it because of the vision and the leadership that he had. So the citizens of Smyrna would historically understand, I was dead, and now I am alive. Have you ever driven through an East Texas town? And you can tell at one time this town was alive. Now that nice little storefront is all closed up. The windows are busted out. There's no businesses. There's nothing going on. In fact, all of the residents have moved away. It would be like one of those small towns. And all of a sudden, some wealthy investor came in and said, we're going to rebuild this town from ground zero. That's what Alexander the Great did and his associates for Smyrna. So Smyrna understood what it means to be dead and now alive. It was no accident that Jesus used that term to make a point. This church is going to be commended. He goes on and he says that in commending them. He says to the angel of the church of Smyrna, write, these are the words of him who is the first and the last who died and who came to life again. I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. What a paradox. I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich rich. Now, now stop and think about that for a second. It's not that Jesus was looking necessarily, though he wouldn't even have to because he's omniscient. It's not that he's looking at them and saying, hey, I notice. No, he says, I know your affliction and I know your poverty. Why? Because he was afflicted and he was poor. Jesus himself said, even the son of man hath no place to lay his head. Jesus understood where they were. He understood true richness, doing the will of the Father. He said, but you are rich. And I know the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. He says in verse 10, do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, 
and you will suffer persecution for 10 days. That word 10 days does not mean necessarily a literal 10 days, though it could. 10 days is a short time. It's symbolic of a short time. He goes on, he says, be faithful, even to the point of death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who has an ear. Most of you in this room have two of them. Pay attention to what you're seeing here. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes will not be hurt at all by the second death. This church commended, again, for their suffering, for the sake of the gospel and the sake of Jesus Christ. And then he lets them know it's going to continue for a short time longer. But you must persevere. And even persevere unto death, and if you do, you will receive the crown of life. And you will avoid the second death. Hell. I want us to look at this today, this example that we have been given, so that we can gain insight from the Smyrnans, from this church. By looking at Christ's admonitions to them, just as we looked last week, and I pray you were challenged to examine yourself. Have I forsaken my first love? I want you to be challenged to ask yourself and to answer this question. Am I really willing to suffer for Christ? They give us an example of what that really looks like. So if you're interested in that today, and you're still awake after all of the facts and the history that I've given you, if you're interested in the fact that those who are truly Christians, who are truly the church, will suffer and will die and will persevere for Christ, if you're interested in learning about that, this is the great example that we have in Scripture, Smyrna. So let's look at this example and let's learn from it. We can learn from Smyrna that a church that is truly willing to suffer for Christ, write it down, will find true riches in Christ alone. A church who is willing to suffer for Christ will find their wealth in Christ. He said, I know your affliction and your poverty. And I love this statement. Yet you are rich. He's talking about those who find true riches in Christ. They're not concerned any longer with the things of this world, the greed of this world. These people value Christ above worldly riches. Do you? Do you value Christ above your worldly riches? Are you like the man in Luke chapter 12 that Jesus speaks of? In Luke chapter 12, verse 13, it says this, Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. They wanted Jesus to plead their case so that they could have what they wanted from their greedy heart, from their brother. And Jesus replied, Man, who appointed me a judge or an arbiter between you? Then he said to them, watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. A man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them this parable, the ground of a certain rich man produced a good crop. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, this is what I'll do. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of good things laid up for many years. Take life easy, 
eat, drink, and be merry. Sounds like a 401k, doesn't it? Verse 20 says, But God said to him, You fool. This very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? We know who's going to get it. His kids are going to fight over it. They're going to hate each other for the rest of their life. It would have been better if the man would have just given it all away to the needy. And who will get what you have prepared for yourself? He goes on and says, 21, this is how it will be with anyone who stores up things for himself but is not rich toward God. Smyrna, the complete opposite of that. Rich toward God. He says, yet you are rich. Why is this so important in talking about Smyrna? And why were they so poor? In an area that was industrially, it was sound because of the trade of myrrh. And there was lots of business and, and vibrance going on in Smyrna. Most of the people there were quite wealthy, but yet the Christians were poor and afflicted. Why? Because what you don't know, if you haven't studied, that I do know is this. There in Smyrna were trade guilds. We would know them as unions, and they controlled everything. When a person would profess Christ alone, you know what would happen to them? No one would hire them. No one would trade with them. The trade guilds would blackball them so that they could not make an income, so that they could not trade with others. The marketplaces were not for rent for them, only for those who were pagan. Oh, you see how quickly things can change, don't you? Oh, we live in a country where, thankfully, we have always had our religious liberty. Will you please hear me when I tell you this? This is not guaranteed forever. At any moment in time, we could lose those things. And so we must look, as the, the, the people there in Smyrna look, are my riches really in Christ? And in Christ alone. These people valued Christ above all of their worldly riches because they had lost them all, yet they had not would not ever lose Christ. Forced out of the trade guilds, losing their sources of income, perhaps their once influential spots in the city, because they would not worship Caesar, they would not worship Rome, they would not worship the false gods and goddesses of the day. But they found their sufficiency elsewhere. Their sufficiency is not found in the things of the world, but found in Christ. Just as Paul says in Philippians chapter 3, verse 7, he says this, But whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. He said, I consider them rubbish, scubulant in the Greek. That's trash, but more specifically, it is the trash of excrement that they would take out of the city. Paul is saying this, all the things that I have lost because I am being persecuted for Christ, they are dung. They're useless. If you go back and you study the life of Paul, you will see this, that Paul was a very influential man, both in the educational world and in the religious world. He studied at the feet of Gamaliel. He was up and coming as he climbed the religious ladder, probably someday would have served as the high priest. 
However, for Christ, he gave up everything. And he says, everything that I gave up for Christ, worthless. Worthless trash. Human excrement. Christ is my sufficiency. This church would value Christ above everything. Worldly riches. But not only worldly riches, they would value Christ above worldly relationships. Take note of this. They were kicked out of the synagogue. Not only were they kicked out of the trade guilds, they were kicked out of the synagogue. Jesus warned that this was going to happen to the true followers of Christ, that as the Jews turned on Christ, they would also turn on the others who came from that line. In fact, he tells them this in John chapter 16, as he speaks to his disciples in verse 1. He says, all this I have told you so that you will not go astray. They will put you out of the synagogue. In fact, the time is coming when anyone who kills you will think he is offering a service to God. Jesus said, your persecution is going to come from your Jewish brothers. They would do such things because they have not known the Father or me. Verse 4 says, I have told you this so that when the time comes, you will remember that I warned you. I did not tell you this at first because I was with you. Jesus said, but now I'm leaving you and I want you to know this. As my followers, people are going to hate you because you follow me. He says that there to the church at Smyrna. He says, I know the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. God reveals to them who they're really dealing with. Because we know this. We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against powers and principalities and forces of darkness. We wrestle against our adversary, the devil. He's reminding them of this. Reminding them to keep their value where it belongs. Christ. Above worldly riches, above worldly religion, relationships. You know these people in the early church would lose relationships with their family? Would lose relationships with those that they loved and who once loved them? All because of Christ. Here in America, we seemingly lose nothing, but yet still won't live for Christ. These people would lose it all, but they didn't place value in their worldly riches or their worldly relationships. They knew that Jesus taught that a worthy servant would hate mother or father or sister or brother. That they would love Christ more than all things. You say, well, Kirk, that's a lot to ask, is it? Is it really a lot to ask for the one who gave everything for us? Oh, he's asking it today. Are you receiving it? Are you really willing to find true riches in Christ alone? They were slandered. They were persecuted. Slandered by the Jews. Persecuted by the Romans. Isn't it true that in 1 John he told us this? Chapter 3, do not be surprised. Verse 13, my brothers, if the world hates you. The people of Smyrna were experiencing this hatred from the world and the system of Satan. Oh, we experience it in our lives, don't we? No, the fire is not turned up to the degree that it was cranked up at Smyrna. The world hates us. The world hates the Christian. Don't think for a second that they're our friends. In fact, Christian, watch this. Stop trying to be friends with them. 
It will only last until you stand for Christ. Don't waste your time on worldly relationships that lead to nothing. The world is not our friend. You were not a friend of God when you were a friend of the world. Don't be deceived into thinking that. And so we see this example here in Smyrna, these people who are willing to lose everything because the world was against them. So we have to ask this tough question. Will you be willing to suffer for Christ when things get tough? When the whole world comes against you? Oh, public school teacher, in your paganistic, godless environment that you're forced to walk into every day, Oh, don't forget, they kicked him out a long time ago. He hasn't forgotten. Will you take a stand there? I've had school teachers tell me this. I wish I could talk to my students about Christ. You wish you could talk to your students about Christ? Talk to your students about Christ. They need it. They need Christ. But it'll cost me my job. Yeah, it may cost you everything. Do you value Christ more than your job? Do you trust him enough to say, hey, if I lose this job, he'll find me another one. The church of Smyrna gives us an example of people who trusted God, even with their finances. And he says this to them. See your poverty, but you are so rich. You know, in the American church, we would be more interested in being rich in the eyes of the world than being rich in the eyes of God. Doing exactly opposite of what Jesus told us to do, to store not for ourselves treasures on earth, but to store for ourselves treasures in heaven. Because the things of this earth are going to pass. They're going to decay. Over that young man in that classroom who you boldly lose your job for, who hears the gospel and believes. Oh, and they catch wind that you shared the gospel. And they come down. And they let you know that was your last day. Rejoice in your suffering. Will you do that? Will you rejoice in your suffering? Oh, it could be applied to any workplace in this country that says we can't share our faith. You can't stop me from sharing my faith. It is the very fiber of which I am made of in Christ. But what about you? Are you willing to suffer for Christ when things get tough? If you are, you will have a value over Christ above worldly riches. You'll be willing to lose it all for Christ. Many of you have. Do you value Christ above worldly relationships? Do you? Or are you more interested in having friends on your social media page? We must be more interested in the value of Christ. We must be more interested in the sufficiency of Christ. That is what the early church gives us an example of here at Smyrna, losing it all. And Jesus comes and he says, I see your affliction, I see your poverty, but you're rich. You're rich in my eyes, and that's what matters the most. Verse 9, I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. I know the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, or a synagogue of Satan. He moves to the next verse, and we'll move to the next point. If you're truly willing to suffer for Christ. Verse 10 says this, do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you. And you will suffer persecution 
for 10 days. A church that's truly willing to suffer for Christ will face suffering and persecution. Watch this, church, with hope. You know what Smyrna had? Hope. They understood that their citizenship did not lie in Smyrna. Well, I would to God that the American church would realize that our citizenship does not lie in this country. Our citizenship lies in a land that we have not seen in a place that has been prepared for us by a sovereign God and His Son who came to die on a cross to rescue us. Church that's truly willing to suffer for Christ will face suffering and persecution with hope. He says, do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. True believer in the midst of suffering, midst of trials, will have hope in Christ. How? By following the instructions of Jesus. Those who face suffering and persecution with hope will follow the instructions of Jesus. What does Jesus say about this? I love that. He tells them, don't be afraid. You just stop there for a minute. Look what Jesus just told them. Do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison and test you, and you will suffer persecution for 10 days. Why did Jesus not just tell them to take Jeremiah 29, 11 out of context and quote it? Oh, the Lord has plans to prosper me. Does he? Eventually. But he's telling this church, you're not ever going to have worldly riches. And you're going to be put in prison. And some of you are even going to die. You can't quote Jeremiah 29, 11. That was my plan for Jeremiah. That's not my plan for you. My plan is that you suffer. My plan is even that you die, but in that, that you will, as we will see in a moment, will be rewarded. The true church, one that is truly willing to suffer for Christ, will face suffering and persecution with hope, hope in their hearts, following the instructions of Jesus. What did he say? Do not be afraid. I love this. In Matthew chapter 10, Jesus gives another discourse on not being afraid. He says this in verse 26, do not be afraid of them. He's talking about those who were going to persecute the early church. He says, do not be afraid of them. There's nothing concealed that will not be disclosed or hidden that will not be made known. What I tell you in the dark, speak in the daylight. Don't be ashamed. What is whispered in your ear, proclaim from the rooftops. Proclaim the gospel. Do not be afraid of those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. He's saying, don't fear man. Fear God. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? He said, are they of equal value? Of course. Yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from the will of your Father. What is Jesus saying here? He's giving you instructions. When you suffer persecution, don't be afraid. Isn't the value of the sparrow set? A penny, a sparrow. And know this about them. God's in complete control when one of them falls to the ground. Not one will fall apart from the will of your Father. I find myself doing that from time to time. Occasionally, we have birds around here that think that they're fighting other birds and they run into the glass. And Well, it's lights out. I know the cost of a penny. I mean, the cost of a sparrow is a penny. I'm not sure the cost of a crow, but many times crows meet their fate on our windows here at the church. Every time I see that crow carcass laying on the ground, I think of that. Now, one sparrow has fallen to the ground, lest it be the will of the Father. 
He goes on, he says, even the very hairs of your head are all numbered. God's saying, I have this. I am in control. So don't be afraid. You are worth more than many sparrows. Whoever acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge him before my Father in heaven. But whoever disowns me before men, I will disown him before my Father in heaven. Why does he say that here? Because he knew when the persecution would come, there would be people who would try to attempt to get the true Christians to renounce their faith. You know what he's saying here? The true Christian will never renounce their faith. They'll know that if suffering and persecution is required of them, that is the price that they are going to have to pay. And it is all according to the will of God, just as it was according to the will of God that the sparrow fell to the ground. Well, the church of Smyrna, they understood this. They followed the instructions of Jesus, not being afraid, not worrying. Oh, I remember a recent event not too long ago that will go unnamed. Seemingly everyone was afraid. Oh, didn't it separate the true believers from those who make false claims? Well, I'm thankful for the true believers who persevered. Oh, it was nothing compared to what they said it was going to be. But I love to see when a believer said this, and I saw many of them who had this attitude. If this thing takes me out, blessed be the name of the Lord. He'll be praised. We're not going to give up meeting and worshiping and proclaiming the gospel and singing songs and adoring Him for who He is. He deserves that. He's worthy of it. It cost us our life. I remember when we first heard of this thing. Our elders had a meeting. Like, let's open the doors back up. And the eldest of our elders said this. Let's open back up. If we open back up and one soul hears the gospel, and I get infected and it costs me my life, it was worth it for that one soul. The church at Smyrna understood these things because they followed the instructions of Jesus. Not only did they follow the instructions of Jesus to not be afraid of the things that the world can do to us, they focused on the example of Jesus. That's what the author of Hebrews tells us in Hebrews chapter 12. He says, let us fix our eyes on Jesus. And why should we fix our eyes on Jesus? The author and perfecter of our faith because he started this and he's going to finish this, our faith. But watch this. Who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. The joy set before him endured suffering. You know why he endured suffering with joy? Because it was according to the will of God. Not one sparrow ever falls to the ground without the Lord's permission. The church of Smyrna was focused on the example of Christ. They looked at Christ, they fixed their eyes on him, They saw his willingness to suffer. They saw his willingness to suffer with joy. And why did it bring him joy? You say, well, it looks like it brought him agony. It did. And in the midst of his agony, he experienced joy. Why? Because it pleased the Father that he would suffer. The church of Smyrna understood this. We are pleasing God. We're bringing glory to God in our sufferings just as Christ did. Where are the Christians who rejoice in their suffering? Because in it, they can more clearly identify with Christ. They focus on the example of Christ, that true and willing servant will 
when he suffers. Focus on the example of Christ. So follow the instructions of Christ. They focused on the example of Christ. And then a person who's really willing to suffer. Remember, that's the question you're asking yourself today. Am I truly willing to suffer? You'll find hope in Jesus Christ alone. Romans chapter 5. For the sake of time, I'm only going to read a few verses of this, though I love Romans 5. It says this in verse 3, Not only so, but we also rejoice in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance, character, character, hope, and hope does not disappoint us because God has poured out His love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit whom He has given us. When we suffer, we find hope in our suffering. When we persevere, we find hope in our suffering. Why? It's because of the hope of Christ that lives in us through the power of the Holy Spirit. May we boast in Christ during those times and in Christ alone. Man, how did you get through that? That was a difficult time. Christ. In Christ alone. May I boast in Him and find hope in Him. Jeremiah chapter 9, verse 23 says this. This is what the Lord says. Let not the wise man boast of his wisdom or the strong man boast of his strength or the rich man boast of his riches. Oh, many people there in Smyrna boasting of their riches. Many people in America boasting of their riches. He said, those things mean nothing. You have no hope in those things. Watch what he says next. But let him who boasts boast about this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who exercises kindness, justice, and righteousness on earth. For in these I delight, declares the Lord. If and when you ever have to suffer persecution, my prayer for you is that you suffer persecution with great hope because a true believer will. As the psalmist proclaims in Psalm 25, I'm going to read probably more than I ought, but I don't want to leave it out. It says, To you, O Lord, I lift my soul. I trust in you, O my God. Do not let me be put to shame. Don't let my enemies triumph over me. No one whose hope is in you ever will be put to shame. But they will put put to shame. They will be put to shame who are treacherous without excuse. Show me your ways, O Lord. Teach me your path. Guide me in your truth and teach me. For you are God, my Savior, and my hope is in you all day long. The psalmist, suffering many things, his enemies on every side. He says, remember, O Lord, your great mercy and love, for they are from old. Remember not the sins of my youth and my rebellious ways. According to your love, remember me, for you are good, O Lord. Good and upright is the Lord. Therefore, he instructs sinners in his ways. He guides the humble in what is right and teaches them his ways. All the ways of the Lord are loving and faithful for those who keep the demands of his covenant. For the sake of your name, O Lord, forgive my iniquity, though it is great. Who then is the man that fears the Lord? Who is it? He will instruct him in the way chosen for him. He will spend his days in prosperity, and his descendants will inherit the land. Prosperity as the world defines it? Absolutely not. The true riches of God, that's true prosperity. Christ and Christ alone, the greatest treasure. The Lord confides in those who fear him. He makes his covenant known to them. My eyes are ever on the Lord, for only he will release my feet from the snare. Turn to me and be gracious to me, for I am lonely and afflicted. The troubles of my heart have multiplied. Free me from my anguish. Look upon my affliction and my distress and take away all my sins. See how my enemies have increased and how fiercely they hate me. Guard my life and rescue me. Let me not be put to shame, for I take refuge in you. May integrity 
and uprightness protect me because my hope is in you. Oh, don't you know those believers there at Smyrna would read the 25th Psalm with great hope in their heart. Is your hope in Christ? Are you hoping in Him today? Is He everything to you? Will you face suffering if it be the will of God? Still holding on to hope? Are you following the instructions of Jesus? Fearing not what man can do to you, what this world can do to you, you young people, what your friends may say about you. Are you focused on the example, the suffering that Christ gives us? Or we whine about the smallest things, forgetting that Christ suffered and He died a brutal death on a cross that belonged to us. Can I help all of you this morning? If you're not willing to live for Christ when times are good, you will never suffer for Christ in difficult times. The American church has been deceived into thinking that they will when they will not. The church at Smyrna gives us a different example. Church that was following the instructions of Jesus, focused on the example of Jesus, and they had hope in the midst of their circumstances. Thirdly, I want you to see this in this text. A church that is truly willing to suffer for Christ will faithfully persevere in Christ. Verse 10, he said, Do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison and to test you, and you will suffer persecution for ten days. He says then this, Be faithful, even to the point of death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear What the Spirit says to the churches, he who overcomes will not be hurt at all by the second death. A church that is truly willing to suffer for Christ, write this down, will faithfully persevere in Christ. You're never going to turn your back on Christ because the heat was turned up in your life. In fact, the true believer will be refined by that heat. It's as James said in James chapter 1. We ought to consider it Pure joy. Verse 2. My brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. And perseverance, underline this so that you understand it, must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, lacking nothing. God's not mad at you because you suffer. As the charismatics want to teach you in error. God wants you to delight in your suffering. To know that He allowed them into your life to refine you and to mature you and to grow you in the faith so that you can be everything that He desires for you to be. The church of Smyrna understood this. They're not kicking against Him here. In fact, they were already suffering when He addressed them. That's why He had no rebuke for them, only commendation telling them you're doing what you need to do. Keep on doing it church that's truly willing to suffer for Christ will faithfully persevere in Christ, resting in His promises surrounding suffering. Do you know He makes us great promises in His Word? I don't have time to exhaust all of those promises. I will speak of a few. But we see one here, a promise that He gives the church at Smyrna. He says, you will suffer persecution for ten days. He says, short time. Isn't a short time of suffering Worth the riches of Christ? 
Isn't a short time of suffering worth eternal life and eternal blessing? Oh, to the believer, you would say, yes, for sure. For that person who's here today who is posing as a believer, or maybe you don't claim to be a believer at all, it's not worth it to you. You've not yet seen true riches in Christ. That we who are believers, because of His grace, have found a treasure that the system of the world could never even define its magnitude. Rest in the promises that you have. He said your suffering, your persecution is only going to be for 10 days. I'll deliver you. Just like Paul reminds the church of at Corinth during 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 16. He says, therefore we do not lose heart. Though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. Paul understood suffering. I told you, he understood suffering even to the point of death. He says, for our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. Now, many of you would say, light and momentary, he just doesn't know what I've gone through. Shipwrecked, beaten, imprisoned, lashes from the cat of nine tails. In fact, light and momentary was the day that he had his head lopped off of his shoulder by the Romans. Oh, he knows about suffering. He knows about persecution. And he says they're light and they're momentary. Watch what he says about this. They're light and momentary. And they're achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. Oh, the church at Smyrna understood this. That the glory that would be revealed far outweighed the suffering that they were enduring. He says, so we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but what is unseen. Oh, church, will you hear that? We fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. We must rest in the promises surrounding suffering that we find in Scripture. Again, there are many, many more. Not only that, we must remain faithful to Christ through persecution and even death. Now, I'm not telling you this, that if you remain faithful in suffering and death, you will then be saved. I'm saying if you are saved, you will remain in Christ in your suffering and death. You will not apostatize from Him. You will prove that you are truly His purchased by His precious blood. In fact, we think back into church history, and one of the more common names is a man named Polycarp, who was a direct disciple of the Apostle John, who is pinning the revelation that we're reading this morning. I want to give you the account of Polycarp's death. You say, well, why is Polycarp's death so important that I need to hear that account today? Because he was actually executed for his faith in Christ in a place that is now familiar to you named Smyrna. And it is here at Smyrna that Polycarp, a direct disciple of the Apostle John. So if you would, watch how this plays out. Jesus discipled John. John discipled Polycarp. Polycarp dies for his faith in Smyrna. Polycarp, this disciple of John and disciple of Christ. Here's the account of his death. It says, after refusing to renounce his faith in Christ and call Caesar Lord. I told you the problem was not that they worship Jesus, is that they wouldn't worship Caesar and they wouldn't worship Zeus and they wouldn't worship Sibylle. He said he would not renounce his faith in Christ and call Caesar Lord. Polycarp said this, 
80 and six years have I served him, and he never did me any injury. How then can I blaspheme my king and my savior? Watch this. He was then threatened with wild beasts. Well, what they would do in these days as a sporting event, the Romans would unleash wild beasts on the Christian and watch the Christian as they are devoured by these wild beasts. That's how much they hate Christ. Oh, be not deceived, friends. The world still hates you that much. If they had the opportunity to unleash the beast, they would. He was threatened with wild beasts, to which he said, Call them. Call them then. <laughs> For we are not accustomed to repent of what is good in order to adopt that which is evil. Oh, he would not be a friend with the world. We're not accustomed to repent of what is good in order to adopt that is what is, which is evil. I will not renounce my faith in Christ. Unleash the animals. Then the proconsul threatened to burn him with fire. And Polycarp replied, Thou threatenest me with fire which burneth for an hour. And after a little is extinguished, but are ignorant of the fire of coming judgment and of eternal punishment reserved for the ungodly. He said, you threaten me with fire. While you are in danger of the fire of hell and eternal wrath and judgment there. But then he says this, but why tarriest thou? Bring forth what thou wilt. Why are you still messing around? If you're going to burn me, burn me. Do you see the joy that he had in suffering for Christ? We won't even live for him. He says, do what you got to do. Why are you waiting? He goes on to say this. The people then shouted for his death. The bundle of wood was gathered and they brought Polycarp to the stone the stake, hands bound, and began to nail him to the post so he would not jump out of the fire. Watch this, but he refused. The tradition was they would wrap their hands in rope, they would tie them, then they would take a nail, and they would fasten that nail to the stake so that they could not, when the flames got too intense, jump out of the fire. They came to nail him, and Polycarp said, you don't have to nail me. I know who's with me in the fire. Oh, he had read the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He knew. Refused to let him nail him there, and after praying and thanking God for saving him in Christ and for allowing him to die a martyr, for allowing him to die a martyr, the fire was lit. However, the flames did not touch him as the fire swirled around him. Finally, an executioner was commanded to go forth and pierce him with a dagger, and he did. Such a great quantity of blood flowed from him that it extinguished the fire. There in Smyrna is where Polycarp met his fate. Not one sparrow ever falls to the ground without our Father knowing and allowing it to happen. Polycarp understood this, Romans chapter 8, verse 35. It says this, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger. No, bring the animals. Bring the fire. Do what you need to do. 
as it is written, for this, your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future nor any powers, neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Polycarp stood on that. Bring what you may. He knew that they were only doing him a favor. When that blood flowed from his body, extinguishing that fire, he passed from this earth only to see the face of Christ who would say, well done, thy good and faithful servant. You enter into the kingdom that was prepared for you since before the foundations of this earth. Polycarp knew the third thing, that he would be receiving great reward. A church that's truly willing to suffer for Christ will faithfully persevere in Christ, resting in his promises, remaining faithful to Christ even through our persecution and our death and receiving great reward for it. The reward of those who persevere in suffering is that crown of life that he promises the church of Smyrna, confirming that they are truly his. They persevered until the end. Many would ask, Kirk, are you saying that those who don't persevere unto the end are not truly Christians? Let's see what Jesus says about it in Matthew chapter 13. I won't give you the whole parable. I have exhausted it before. But I will give you one verse there. You know it to be the parable of the soils in Matthew chapter 13. Verse 21 says, but since he has no root, he's talking about the seed that fell on rocky ground, he lasts only a short time. When trouble or persecution comes because of the word, he quickly falls away. He was never truly a believer. Are you in danger of that this morning? What if the heat were turned up on your life? Could you look forward to the reward that you have in heaven? Or do you know the truth is you have no reward in heaven? Because the church at Smyrna persevered because they understood they had a reward waiting on them. Eternal life. That crown that was promised to them by Jesus Christ Himself. He also knew that they would escape, as he promised here, the second death. What is the second death? Well, you can read about that in Revelation. It is when the souls of wicked men are judged for their sin and they're cast into the lake of fire for all eternity, forever. And the Bible is very clear, that is the second death. Oh, I'm thankful today that because of Christ, I don't have to endure the second death. Because you know what? The little... Light and momentary things that I may suffer in this life do not compare to hell for all eternity. So the Christian may suffer in this life. We will rejoice and be rewarded with life eternal, escape, rescue from the second death. But we must not shrink back in the face of suffering. You say, well, Kirk, it's really not that bad right now. At one time, it was really not that bad in Smyrna. But are you prepared for when it becomes difficult? You look around you. You ask any of those who have been on this earth for many generations. They'll tell you this. You can talk to an 80-year-old. You can talk to a 90-year-old. They're still around. Ask them. Are things different? 
We have one in our midst who is 99. You can ask her, are things different? Yes, they're different. The world's gone crazy. All of them will tell you the same thing. Why do I say this? Because in a moment, in a moment, the world could turn on the church even in this country. Are you prepared to stand and to stand in Christ? Will you faithfully persevere? Again, let me remind you, if you won't live for Christ in the good times, you will definitely not suffer and die for Christ in the difficult times. Examine your heart today. Examine your heart to see, will I faithfully persevere in Christ? Are you resting in God's promises right now? If you're, if you're not resting in God's promises right now, you're not going to rest in God's promises then. Are you remaining faithful to Christ in your life right now? If you're not, you're not going to then. Will you be rewarded? Do you look for that? Do you long for that? Do you know that that has been guaranteed? Does eternal life belong to you? Have you truly surrendered to Jesus as your Lord and Savior? Trusted Him to forgive you of all of your sin and to make you right with your Heavenly Father? Are you those who persevere like the example that we see in Smyrna? Those who Hebrews talks about in chapter 10 as the authentic believers who do not shrink back. Are you truly a Christian today? If you are, See the example of Smyrna. See the example of Christ to Smyrna. Continue in your willingness to suffer for the Lord who suffered for you. May we be found as a people and as a church who like Smyrna, when faced with suffering and difficulty and even death, fixed our eyes on Jesus Christ our greatest prize, our greatest reward. And who, like Polycarp, suffered and died, but in it brought God great glory. Would you bring Him glory in your life? Most importantly, would you bring Him glory in your death? May we suffer. May we suffer well if the time comes for the name of Jesus Christ who suffered in our place. Let's pray together. Father, in the name of Jesus, we come to you thanking you so much for your word. But sometimes these things are difficult truths to embrace. God, I pray today that by your spirit, we would embrace these truths, that we would be challenged to examine our lives, to ask ourselves these difficult questions, to ask ourselves the question, what if true suffering came? Would I be marked as a true believer? One who perseveres not only in life, but who perseveres in suffering and in death. Father, I pray for your children who are here right now, who know you, that your spirit empower them for the day of suffering. Lord, I also pray for those who are here today who might not know you at all. I pray today that you would graciously save them as they have heard the truth that our only hope is Christ and Christ alone that you would open their eyes to see that truth and to believe that you would save them this very day. We pray and we ask all these things in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. 
Thank you for listening to the Key Life Fellowship Pulpit Ministry Podcast. If you would like to talk with one of our pastors, please email us at info at keylifefellowship.org or call us at 281-689-1604. You can also visit our website at www.keylifefellowship.com. We hope and pray you have a blessed week. And remember, you are light in the darkness. Thank you.